Good morning. At Trinity, we've been uh, preaching sermons on the book of Acts for the last few weeks. Really, this journey began in January where we started in the book of Luke, and we've gone all the way through up into Acts now. Acts was also written by the same author that wrote the Gospel of Luke. So we've been continuing in that journey. Next week, we finish our series in Acts, and then we're going to transition to a new sermon series starting at the end of June. So we only have two more weeks left of this journey that we've been on. Um, I have two scripture readings for us this morning. One is Psalm 118, verses 21 through 25. And we're reading this because it's what uh, Peter and John quote in Acts chapter 4. And then I'll actually be paying attention to the whole of Acts chapter 4, but I'll just read a few verses of it. I don't want to read all 31 verses. That's a lot of verses to read for my sermon. So listen to God's word, starting with Psalm 118. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. And now Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And just as a reminder, last week we were in Acts chapter 3, and this incredible story happened where Peter and John healed this beggar outside of the gates. The beggar wanted silver and gold. Peter and John said they didn't have any silver and gold, but they had Jesus. And they were wondering if he would like to have Jesus instead of having silver and gold. And so they give him Jesus, and he's healed, and he praises God for what happens to him. And so news about that event begins to unravel and unfold in the city of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up on the story now with Peter and John. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them, put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Then this group of elders and leaders convenes together. They have a conversation about what to do with Peter and John. And because there's so many new followers and believers, they decide to let them go. They let them go. And later on in the chapter, after they're let go from this trial of theirs, 
They go back to their friends, the NRSV says, which is their church community. And so now picking up on verse 29, I believe, uh, they're all together, and they end up praying together for one another, and this is the end of their prayer. It says, And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. About 10 or 15 years ago, uh, there was this big landmark study on pastors in Protestant churches around the United States of America. Um, And the study found out that it was something like half of all people that transitioned from seminary into pastoral roles quit ministry within two to three years. And the Presbyterian Church found out about this, and so they tried to create a program to help transition people from going from graduate school into pastoral work. And the company, or they, they created this program, the program was called Company of New Pastors. And I was blessed by God to be a part of this Company of New Pastors for the last five years of my life. It begins in your last year of seminary, where you would meet with other people who are going to become pastors, about eight of us, with two professors. We met every month, we worshiped together, we prayed together. Um, And then after that, when we moved to different regions throughout the country, we met with other pastors who were in our same life phase, just new pastors straight out of graduate school. And we would meet together once every seven or eight months for four years. And we just had our final gathering last month at Zephyr Point in Lake Tahoe. And these are some great friends now. They've become great brothers and sisters. And we also had two mentors. One of the mentors is missing out of that picture, um, but... Our other mentor pastor is that guy who's laying on the chairs right there. His name is Lee Riley. Um, You can go to the next photo, Joel. Lee's a really cool guy. He's an alpinist. He was a mountain guide um, before he was a pastor. I'm not sure why he decided to change careers. (laughs) Climbing mountains for a living sounds pretty cool. Uh, He's an amazing guy. He's done uh, Mount Rainier 30 or 40 times and taken groups of people up there. Anyways, at the end of these retreats, like I said, we had one every seven or eight months, so five or six of these for the last four years. And at the end of our time together, we would have a worship service, and Lee would preach. And he would preach the same sermon every time. And it became a joke, sort of, in our group, where it was like, okay, Lee's going to preach his sermon again. Here it comes. And his sermon was this. Be bold. Be bold. Be bold for Jesus. If you're timid, that is not going to do anything for Jesus Christ. Don't be timid. Be bold. So we would always laugh afterwards, of course, you know, like, be bold, Lee. And we would, we would tease him about it. But I think there's something about that that was striking to have another person say to me, be bold for Jesus. Be bold. Because I think being bold is tough. It's hard in our context to be bold for Jesus. Isn't it? Doesn't it feel hard to be bold for Jesus in our context? We live in a plural world 
a plural society where people come from so many different faith traditions, faith backgrounds, religious backgrounds. This is an international part of the world. It's amazing. People come from so many different places and backgrounds. We work with people from all over the world, the country. Uh, this is just a plural society we live in. And humans have this tendency in the midst of plurality to try to seek out common ground when they meet with each other. And Jesus is not part of common ground. It's just not part of our common ground. But we like to seek out common ground to have relationship with people. For instance, I've been spending time with a lot of young families lately who have children between the ages of zero and two. And so their common ground is what zero to two-year-olds tend to do, which is eat, drink, and then dispose of what they eat and drink. <laughs> and most often those conversations are happening in the context of places that you don't usually talk about that activity, like eating a meal with people. <laughs> Uh, and they just begin to get used to this, to having these kinds of conversations about eating, drinking, and getting rid of the eating and drinking. That's their common ground. So if we say, be bold for Jesus, it feels strange to talk about, how would you be bold for Jesus in that context? It would feel foreign. It would feel bizarre to be like, just insert into the middle of that. Yeah, you know, Jesus, just jump right in there. Jesus was doing that stuff too, you guys, and I'm going to tell you about it right now. That feels so foreign and for, so strange. Being bold for Jesus is like a, it's just a hard thing to imagine in our context sometimes because of our plural world, where Jesus is not part of that common ground. I think the scriptures for us today, though, they give us some helpful insight, and I hope that in paying attention to this story and this narrative can free us to take a deep breath and stand up a little bit straighter and trust in what it is that God is doing in our life and what Jesus is doing in us to be bold for Jesus. It's interesting, chapter 4 of Acts is, like I said, a continuation of Acts chapter 3, where they meet this panhandler, and he's asking for money, and they say, we have Jesus to give you. We have Jesus to give you. It's fascinating. So they do it. He's healed. And at that time, maybe there was 500,000 or so people living in the city of Jerusalem. So one would imagine that this person who's been healed by Jesus goes out and tells everyone, right? You can only, I mean, you can only do that. You would have to just get up and run around. So in a town of 500,000 people, maybe this is how the media works there, is by word of mouth and him sharing news about this. People are learning about what's going on, and they know that something has happened amazing in Jesus Christ. So Peter and John's reputation for, for loving Jesus, it precedes them. And these elders, these leaders, they hear about it, and they go to seek Peter and John out. They go to seek Peter and John out, and then they set up a trial for them. Now, the trial evokes, to me at least, a memory of what happens in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is put on trial in front of all of these people. And they ask Jesus these questions you know, by whose authority do you do these things? Jesus is like, it's me. I, I, am, I am divine. And his boldness for himself ends poorly for Jesus. But then when Peter and John are in the same situation, the text says the Spirit of God was in them. And they were honest. They said, you guys, the one you rejected is actually the cornerstone. The one you rejected is the cornerstone. Jesus is actually really significant. Not just for you, but for everyone. There's something really incredible about Jesus, and you guys need to pay attention to it. 
Now, luckily, this time their boldness works out okay for them. Apparently, they have a large enough community, you know, uh, 5,000 in a 500,000 city. So they let them go, and they get to go back to their friends, and they pray for more boldness. Here's the insight that I want to pay attention to in Acts chapter 4. It's that their reputation precedes them. Their reputation precedes them. And then these people ask them what is going on in their life and what makes them who they are. And then they're bold for Jesus. And then they're bold for Jesus. I made a friend in the last year who used to work in the high-tech industry. And he would tell me that coming to church sometimes was difficult because he would always feel guilty because pastors would tell him that he needed to go and tell people about Jesus and that he had to be the person, the spokesperson out in the world, that the pastors couldn't do it, the pastors could just encourage you, but then you needed to go out and do it. But he didn't really know how to do it because he'd be sitting in a boardroom with venture capitalists and it never felt appropriate to talk about Jesus in the midst of a board meeting. It felt bizarre and strange in that place to just cut in. Like, where in the work world am I just going to cut in and tell people about Jesus in the middle of this? And then he told me, you know, I just try to live my life as a Christian to the best that I can and be in relationship with people, staying in those places of common ground, waiting for moments when coworkers and friends will actually just ask me who makes me who I am. And then in that space, he prays for boldness to share about who Jesus is and he tries his best to do it in that moment. See, it's living his life for Jesus leads to conversations so that it's not conversations that are thrown on top in the get-go that lead to this kind of being bold for Jesus. I think it's a really interesting insight my friend brings up. And not just for him and his work world, but I also think when it comes to parenting, I think it's fascinating to think about that, to think about how the way we live our lives then invites questions. And then in the midst of those questions, we can talk about why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. For instance, um, Trinity hosts Home and Hope in July. We've taken this on as a ministry of this church to host homeless families at this church twice a year. And we go do this. We don't tell them about Jesus. We just go host them and be the best hosts we can. And we know why we do this. Because Jesus loves us, and Jesus has been a healing presence in our life, and so we want to love other people. We don't tell them about that. But you know, what happens often is that families come be a part of this, and then kids ask their parents, why do we do what we do? Why are we going tonight to make dinner and serve it with these other families? That's because Jesus loves the poor and the homeless, and because Jesus loves us, we get to share that with them. You can imagine something like that, like a rich conversation happening because of these kinds of activities that are happening in our life. And I know teenagers, you guys care so much about the why. Why do we do what we do? And even if you don't ask it, I know that that's really what you're processing on the inside. Why do we do what we do? And you're here this morning and you're thinking, why am I even in this place? <laughs> I know you're thinking that right now. Why am I here right now? It's because Jesus loves you. It, that's why. And Jesus has loved your parents, and your parents want you to come and hear that message this morning so that it can become a part of who you are, and it will change your life. There's been one person, another person in the last year of my life that's been 
helping me to be bold for Jesus. Um, he's been a pastor in this community for a long time, Brett Fenwick. Some of you know him and have known him for a long time, and some of you maybe you never had the chance to get to know Brett, but Brett died a, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And I have to tell you, it was such a gift to have a relationship with Brett. About a year or so ago, I made it kind of a point to go see him, to pray with him, and we started this tradition of he would share his old sermons with me. He would give me a CD. I'd listen to them. I'd go back and see him, and we would have conversations about his sermons. Um, and it was, it was awesome. Brett was a fiery preacher. Uh, <laughs> I heard some of his sermons in this place, and he, was, he had the southern thing where he would start nice and slow, and then he'd be like, let justice roll down. <laughs> I was like, Brett, you are bold, you know? You are bold. He said, it's not for me, it's for Jesus. I'm bold for Jesus. And there would be times when we would leave the benediction out here, and I'd walk by, and Brett would always sit in the back pew, and he would do this thing. I think it's something Southern people do. I had a friend in seminary who was Southern, and he did this thing where it's just a small symbol, but he would see me walking by and be like, yeah, good sermon. Yeah. That's a good sermon. <laughs> And I said, oh, it's, you know, it's for Jesus, Brett. And he's like, yeah, I know, but it's for Jesus. Uh, and that's just rich. That's joyful. That's what I love about the end of this chapter when this intense trial happens for Peter and John, and they're put on the spot to ask them, why do you do what you do? How did this healing take place? And they say, it's Jesus. It's not actually me. I didn't do this, but Jesus did it. He's your salvation. He's not just my salvation, but he's everyone's. He's really bold. They're bold for Jesus. But then they go back to their church and they pray together. They pray for more boldness. And when they have these opportunities that arise to share, they pray. And they just pray that the Spirit's going to work in and through that somehow to some extent. doesn't mean that we're going to go out and go throw Jesus over everybody. But when those opportunities arise in the life of our family, wherever we are, we can be bold for Jesus. So let's do that. Let's close this sermon in a word of prayer, and then we'll continue our worship service this morning. Lord God, thank you for the witness of Peter and John. God, that they knew your holy word. They knew the Psalms. So when they were put on the spot to answer the question, they knew just where to go, that Jesus is the cornerstone and that salvation comes in and through him alone. So God, thank you for them, and we pray for boldness in our own community, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us so that we could share the good news of Jesus with one another, with people outside in the community, and that we could grow as your disciples. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.